Well, this morning we're going to conclude our little psalm series we've been doing the last seven or so weeks as we've been looking at the psalms that David wrote during this period of 1 Samuel. Um, we'll get back into, Lord willing, 1 Samuel next week in chapter 24 and uh, be concluding the book this month. I don't know if it struck you as we've been making our way through these psalms um, but it struck me just afresh as I've been preparing week after week that David spills a lot of ink uh, about this incident, this betrayal that he's experiencing at the hands of King Saul, the fact that he's on the run, the fact that he has to hide out in the wilderness in a cave and try to avoid Saul tracking him down and killing him. He spills, spills a lot of ink about that. And I've wondered why this particular instance in David's life was so acutely painful for him. And I don't know if we get an answer for that. But I think we can all resonate with the fact that betrayal, especially by those that you love and that love you, or claim to love you, maybe claim to love you at one time, it is painful. In a way, perhaps no other suffering really is. Um, to have walked beside people for a long period of time, to have helped them, to have served with them, only to have them turn on you or forsake you in your hour of need is a, is a very painful thing. Uh, last week we looked at Psalm 52, um, where David is betrayed by an enemy. Remember Doeg, uh, the Edomite who had betrayed him to Saul, found out where he was, said, hey, David, I know where David is, or sorry, Saul, I know where David is. Um, I overheard him talking to the high priest, and we'll find him. And so Doeg betrays David. David kind of had a hunch that that was going to happen. It's one thing to be betrayed by an enemy like that. It's another thing altogether to be betrayed by a friend, people that you have helped and served and cared for. That's what's happening now. That's the difference between the two psalms. They both deal with betrayal, but they're kind of from an angle of two different sources. So Psalm 52 last week is more about betrayal from an enemy. But Psalm 54 is about betrayal from a friend. David is betrayed in Psalm 54, not by an Edomite, but by a descendant of Esau. Sorry, not by an Edomite, Edomite who's a descendant of Esau, but by one who was of the nation of Israel, the Ziphites the people who lived among Israel. That's acutely painful. You know, um, betrayal, the theme of betrayal, seems to serve as a most compelling plot device for popular stories, doesn't it? Um, there's hardly a story more gripping than when you're watching a movie or reading a book or a story or something, and all of a sudden there's this deep betrayal that happens, like, ooh, what's going to happen? Now, I don't acknowledge the canonicity of the Star Wars prequels. Even though some of you may, and that's okay, you can believe the Apocrypha too. Um, even though George Lucas is the author. I have a hunch. I don't know, we're not going to get in that. But the Star Wars saga does turn on the betrayal of Anakin Skywalker, doesn't it? That's the whole thing. If you had to summarize what's going on in Star Wars, that's essentially it. It's... It's what's happening with Anakin. First of all, he kills Mace Windu, and then he turns to serve Darth Sidious before slaughtering the innocents at the Jedi Temple and then fighting his former mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi. 
And we enjoy stories like that. But uh, we like to keep it in the fiction realm, don't we? I know I do, because it's deeply painful in real life when it happens. If you've ever entrusted a secret to someone or something private and personal only to have it repeated to others, or you told someone how you really felt about another person and they went and told that, that, that other person everything you said, or you thought you had the support of a colleague at work only to discover that they abandoned you when you needed them most, that's, that stuff is real life and that stuff is worse than fiction. So how do we handle betrayal? How do we handle those sorts of emotions that come when friends forsake us, when those we have done good to turn and do evil to us. I hope that's not an unusual thing for you to experience, or obviously I don't desire it to be a common experience for any of us, but hopefully you expect that sort of thing to happen. I hope you expect that there will be times in your life where people will not only let you down, but intend evil against you. Maybe even your own friends. Certainly the Lord Jesus knew it. And if we follow him and walk in his steps, and as Paul says in Philippians 3, have the fellowship of his sufferings, then we'll have that happen to us too. It's just part of life in a fallen world, but it's also part of following a suffering Savior. So let's not be surprised, dear ones, that we have these sorts of trials that come into our life where people that we once loved and that once loved us seem to do so no longer. Perhaps it's a child. Perhaps it's a spouse. Perhaps it's a relative or a distant friend. Surely if you live long enough, you can look back over a period of years and say, I wish it was like it was then, but it isn't anymore. So what do you do with those sorts of emotions? How do you handle that psychologically and spiritually? Well, David gives us a lot of insight in Psalm 54 about how to process that before the Lord. So we're going to look at three ways David deals with the betrayal of a friend here in Psalm 54. Here's the first one. Pray when we're fearful. Pray when we are fearful. The occasion for David's prayer in Psalm 54 is summarized in verse 3 where he says, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Now, the broader story was read for us by Steve just a couple of moments ago in 1 Samuel 23. At the beginning of that chapter, David is told that the Philistines have invaded Cala, which is a city in Israel. And David, as the future king of Israel, already anointed, although waiting on the Lord's timing to assume the throne, sees this as an opportunity for him to serve the people who will one day be his people as king, to defeat their enemies, to push back the threat of the Philistine invasion. So David seeks the Lord as to whether he should engage in the battle, because he's not the king yet, but God gives him the thumbs up to go ahead. And the result in 1 Samuel 23, 5, we read, And David and his men went to Cala and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Cala. By the way, Cala spelled K-E-I-L-A-H. I think I spent the last sermon in 1 Samuel 23 several weeks ago now, a couple months ago, pronouncing it Kela. And uh, one dear sister in our church made a joke about that, that every time I was talking about David going to Kela, that that was funny. And that is funny. That is funny. 
but it's only funny because I don't know how to pronounce the word. All right? So now it's not funny anymore because I got the the word pronounced correctly. I think I've got it pronounced. Who knows? Could be tequila and I could be wrong all the way and then carry on with your tequila jokes. But we do know what the name for sure of the inhabitants of Kela were. They were called the Ziphites. We're told that after the battle that David lived among the Ziphites. In verse 14 of 1 Samuel 24, we read that David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And that's likely where he wrote this psalm, Psalm 54, while he was living among his own people in the wilderness of Ziph in Israel, but on the run still from Saul. And Saul doesn't give up easily. One verse later in verse 15 of 1 Samuel 23, we read, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life and David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. So Jonathan, Saul's son and David's close friend, will not give David's location to his father Saul. However, a few verses later we read, quote, the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. What? The Ziphites, even though David had delivered one of their border towns at great cost to himself and at great risk of his own life from the hands of the Philistines, even though they were the tribesmen of David from his area, from his neck of the woods, so to speak, they go and they turn him into Saul. Imagine how bitter this must have been for David. David wouldn't have been surprised by a character like an Edomite, like Doeg, that he turned him in. Of course. But it would have been particularly hurtful for David to be turned in by a group of people that he had risked his own life to help liberate from the hands of the enemy Philistines. And so David is in mortal danger in this psalm, having been ratted out by the Ziphites as they go to Saul and betray him, or at least attempt to betray him, into Saul's hands. So to put it bluntly, the Ziphites assess the situation and based on the prevailing political winds, they decided to betray David to his greatest enemy. They went on their own initiative to King Saul and not only told him with exacting specificity where David was hiding, but they also offered to surrender David into his hands. Now that is a particularly acute and painful form of suffering, isn't it? To have risked your life for someone only to have them contribute to your own death? Boy, you could imagine the feelings that would come with that, wouldn't you? And yet, David doesn't respond the way so many of us might be tempted to respond or may respond. I'm sure David was tempted to respond in some of these ways. But how would you respond if that were to happen? Would you grab your weapon of choice and say, all right, you had one chance. Now I'm going to wipe out that town. Show them who the king is. And then I'm going to wait for Saul. I'm going to wipe him out too. This is, after all, a great warrior who has already proven that he can take out large groups of people by himself. Rambo's got nothing on David. And yet, 
in the midst of all this betrayal, that's not the way he handles it. He prays. He prays. Dear ones, if that's not our first instinct, something's wrong. Something's wrong. If when you get badly hurt by somebody, if your first instinct is not to pray, something's wrong. Something is wrong in your soul. Something is off. But David prays. Notice how he responds in verse 2. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Now what does he pray for? Well, he prays for verse 1. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. So he prays two things. First of all, he wants rescue. He wants God to save him. He says, save me. Now, salvation in this context, David's not talking about eternal salvation. He's not asking God to save his soul or take him to paradise. He's asking for a temporal salvation. He's asking for God to rescue him from his present enemies who are seeking him down to kill him, namely Saul. And God does. The Philistines attack again and Saul can't go because he's after David. But the Philistines attack once more and Saul has to take his army and go take care of the Philistines and so he leaves David, doesn't he? Did you remember that, that connection when we were reading 1 Samuel 23? What happens to get David out of this situation? Well, we read in 1 Samuel 23, 26 to 28. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Now, If this is an amazing picture of God's sovereignty, I don't know what is. Because if you know Saul, and I know you've gotten to know him, or perhaps been refreshed in your knowledge of him these last several weeks, that wouldn't be much of an impetus for him to go anywhere. He hasn't shown a willingness to engage the Philistines much at all. He's not necessarily prone to go into battle and fight against God's enemies, which is what the king was supposed to do to begin with. But this time, for some reason, he's inclined to go. Even though he's got David on his heels and he's closing in fast. This is a picture of God's sovereignty and protecting David's life. Both in answer to his prayer here for God to save him, but also in the ways he goes about answering that prayer. He causes another enemy to close in on Israel and he turns the king's heart, which as we know, in Proverbs, is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He reaches in, turns Saul's heart toward that battle, and he leaves David. God answers David's prayer and saves his life from Saul. What's the lesson? Prayer works, dear ones. (laughs) It's not a fool's errand for you to call on God to save you and help you. He hears and he answers. God moves the enemies of his people to fight against his people in order to spare the king who will eventually reign over his people. We've got an important lesson we learn here about God, don't we? God will arrange situations in our lives, even the ones that begin good and go bad, to bring about a great deliverance for us that we never would have known had we not gone through that pain to begin with. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with experiencing God's rescue if he puts you in a pit first? 
It's the only way you'll get to know it. (laughs) Unfortunately, we don't learn about God's rescue at the Four Seasons or at the Hilton with our feet propped up, Netflixing and chilling. No, we have to go through serious difficulties and that will increase dependence on God and God will move and rescue us and we will have more joy as a result. God does this because whatever makes us feel our entire dependence upon him is good for us and it's a manifestation of how good he is. Now it's easy to say, but it's hard to believe, right? You mean a straying child, Pastor Mark, that keeps me on my knees before God is good for me? Yeah, it is. You mean a marriage that's struggling, that keeps me on my knees before God is good for me? Yeah, it is. Better than if you had a great marriage and were never on your knees. You mean vocational challenges that keep me on my knees before God are good for me? Yeah, they are. You mean that cancer diagnosis that I just got is good for me? Yeah, it is. Not the thing itself, but the thing that God is doing because of it and through it that he wants you to know and experience his rescue. That's the first thing David prays for and God answers. Second thing that he prays for is David wants vindication. He says in verse 2, vindicate me by your might. He says that actually in verse 1. Vindicate me by your might. David asks God to prove to Saul that he is a man of integrity and dignity. That he is not after Saul's throne. That he is not after Saul's life. He is willing to wait patiently for the Lord to establish that. David doesn't deserve to be treated this way and he wants God to make Saul to know that. Now here's the truth. Saul already knows it. We see it in miniature form as it pops out of Saul occasionally. Oh, you're a better man than me, David. I, you know, I've, you've done me good. I've only done you evil. Saul will acknowledge that. He's insane, but he knows it. He knows that David's not a usurper of the throne. If David was, wouldn't he have killed him when he was playing music in his room? Who was the one hurling the spear? David? No, Saul. Saul knows. And David's prayer is being answered. But he doesn't just want, it's not like David has some, you know, sometimes we can get this sort of sick desire for people to vindicate us. We like, we want people to know it. Listen, people know it. The truth is being suppressed. Okay? You having them acknowledge it is not going to make a whole lot of difference in whether or not they know the truth or not. They know the truth. Okay? David is crying out for God's vindication here, not just of him, but of his kingship. That he's, that it's not just some personal desire that he has. God, I want you to show Saul, show Saul that I'm a good person. I'm not trying to do anything bad. Saul knows that. And David knows that. And God knows that. But what David wants is something bigger than his own life. He wants God's glory to be known. He wants the fact that God has installed David as king to be known. See, that's a different thing. He's not desiring vindication for his own sake. He's desiring vindication for the sake of the people that look to him as king. He's being very other-oriented here. He's saying, Lord, vindicate me not for my sake alone, but for the sake of your people Israel. That they might know that you are God in heaven and don't do this kind of thing to your people. 
So he's been anointed by God as king, but he's determined to not snatch that away from Saul. Yet David's being accused of just the opposite. His name is being run all over Israel as a man with no integrity, a traitor against his people, even though David is in this position simply because God chose him to be there. Dear ones, I was listening to a pastor. Many of you know I was at a pastor's fraternal this week. And I was listening to a pastor's testimony as he shared uh, just a heart-wrenching story. He was called to, I won't give his name or where he was located, but he was called to a church quite far away from where he was serving. It's still in the United States. And it held out great promise for him. He he went there. He, he, he engaged over a week of interviews. He met with the whole congregation in various levels. He said that he engaged in probably 15 hours of questioning. He was getting questions again and again, the same kinds of ones. He was answering the same kind of ones. It was a, a, a warm reception. It was well done, and and uh, he was he was humble and seeking to bless the congregation, and the congregation was seeking to bless him, and he was voted in as their pastor with a 91% approval. Well, as soon as he moved and got in there, within weeks the whole thing blew up. Small group of people in the church began spreading lies, rumors about him, um, split the church, divided it, and he went into a deep depression. Lord, why in the world did I move my family down here to go through this? And uh, he said, he said, the Lord never spoke to me audibly but I just felt over time like I started accusing God of wrongdoing. And God began to rebuke me in my spirit saying, you know, essentially saying, do you think I don't have the right to do that with you? What did you sign up for? Did you think it was just going to all go well? And he said, after counsel and prayer and thought, he said, maybe the Lord sent me there just to expose the rod and get fired. God does that over and over and over again. And is and he looks back on it now, three, four years later, as God working in such a way answering his prayers in ways that he didn't anticipate. But for the sake of his name, that church is in a healthier place now, even though he's not the pastor of it, as a result of having that stuff surfaced through a candidacy gone astray. In 1 Samuel 24, after David spares Saul's life, Saul says in verses 19 and 20, for if a man finds his enemy... Will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. He gets vindicated. But it's very (laughs) short-lived. This vindication doesn't last long. But God does answer both of David's prayers in these verses. But then Saul, like Pharaoh before him, goes right back to his ways intimidation, betrayal, bribery, flattery, all in an effort to see David killed again, which tells us something, doesn't it? Verse 1 says that the reason Saul and his men are attacking David is because they do not set God before themselves. 
And that's the real reason, dear ones. If you are seeking to walk with the Lord faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully, humbly, repentantly, the reason people turn against you really doesn't have anything to do with you at all. It has to do with their hatred for God in you. Now, I know that can be abused. Those statements like that have been abused by church leaders, perhaps even church leaders you know. That's wrong. The man is clearly in sin, and he's rebuked and doesn't listen. Then he just heaps extra judgment on himself when he starts claiming, don't touch the Lord's anointed. I'm just doing God's work. No, you're not. Don't hide behind that, and don't bear false witness by bringing God into your sin as though he were endorsing it. That's not what I'm saying here. But I am saying that if you have a clear conscience before God, according to his word, not according to your own or my own messed up conscience in some way, then you don't have to feel an unnecessarily guilt like you did something wrong when people turn away from you. They have no regard for God. The real reason they hate David has nothing to do with David. It has to do with God. They don't like what God is doing with David because they don't like what God is doing, period. They want their will instead of God's will. They don't respect the future king of Israel because they don't respect the present king of the universe. Jesus reminds all of his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before I hated you, John fifteen eighteen. People who hate us have a much deeper problem if they hate us for the right reasons. For righteousness sake, Jesus said. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. That qualification is important. Because sometimes we can get persecuted by being jerks for Jesus. And that is not biblical persecution. You say hateful things to people in hateful ways, and then people call you hateful. You say, well, I'm just a Christian. No, Christians don't spew hate. Which points us to the fact that no matter what level of vindication we get in this life, it pales in comparison to what we already have. God will one day vindicate us, so we don't have to have it now. Paul reminds all of us who are in Christ, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? You say a lot of people can. But yeah, but it's God who justifies. You're not standing before a tribunal of your peers on the day of judgment. You're standing before one person, and he's your advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in good hands, dear ones. If you are justified in Christ, no charge against you will ultimately stick because our lives are hidden in his. And if he is for us and the whole world is against us, it makes no difference in the end because God will have the last word. Now, these next two points will be a little bit quicker. So David prays when he's fearful. He prays for God to rescue him, and he prays for his vindication. Secondly, we need to preach because we're forgetful. Preach because we're forgetful. In many ways, prayer is not only a conversation with God, it's also a conversation with ourselves. It's a dialogue with our own hearts. In prayer, we are exercising and examining our faith to remind ourselves of what we actually believe, not just what we believe about God in the abstract, but what we believe about his goodness and presence toward us in the specific details of the moment. See, this crisis in David's life, which came about in the Lord's providence, of course, was an opportunity for David to test, or for God to test David's faith and the strength of his faith to discover or rediscover 
in a new situation of betrayal and desperation what he actually believes God to be for him. So he says in verses 4 and 5 what he's preaching to himself. Notice he prays he prays in verses 1 through 3 because God is God is faithful, but he preaches in verses 4 to 5 because he's forgetful. Not God, but we are. What does he preach to himself? Well, first of all, he preaches the character of God, who God is. David has the king of his people hot on his heels. He has armies after him. Saul has the king of his people hot on his heels. Saul has armies after David, and David has this little band of supporters. But David pauses to remind himself of who God is. So first of all, he says in verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. God is the upholder of my life. You can almost hear him preaching that to himself, can't you? Do you say things like that to yourself? God is my helper. God is my helper. He's the upholder of my life. So he says, God is my rescuer. Not that, now that is a glorious term in the Old Testament. God is my helper. It's a term which comes right out of the world of the military. We don't typically use the word helper that way. We think of it as maybe a, um, maybe a flight attendant or perhaps a waiter or a waitress. That's a helper or some servant of some sort. But the word helper has military baggage with it. God is the one who's coming to your aid. He's your ally. He's got your back. He's right there in the trenches with you. And he's not only your rescuer, your helper, but he's also your sustainer. The Lord is the upholder of my life. David's reminding himself that his earthly life is in God's hands. It would be very easy for David to think, okay, my life's in Saul's hands right now. No, it isn't. He might say, I'm as good as dead because Saul is coming after me. No, he's not. He's reminding himself, no, 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 no. Where's my life? It's in God's hands. My life is in God's hands. Second, he says, God is my vindicator. Notice what he says. He will return the evil to my enemies. Verse 5, in your faithfulness, put an end to them. David reminds himself that God himself is the one who's going to recompense evildoers. It's God who's going to bring about the visitation of justice on those who are evil in this world and do evil. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See what David's doing here? Surrounded by his foes, he's preaching to himself. God, you're my rescuer. God, my life is in your hands. God, you will vindicate me. God, your will, you will destroy my enemies. You are the helper of your people. You are just. You're faithful to what you promise. In other words, God will take care of your business. I will leave the matter in his hands. He's beating that into his head. He's pressing it into his heart. He's trying to say, heart, believe this, because his heart is having a hard time believing it. He's preaching to himself instead of listening to himself. Beloved, do you know we need to do that to ourselves every day? Don't we? We are just leaky buckets, aren't we? We can pour in devotions. Five minutes later, it's gone. We have this great time of worship with the Lord. We get in the car and it doesn't start. <clears throat> what do you do in those moments? Well, you tell, you have to, you have to take yourself by the hand. You got to talk to yourself. You got to tell yourself truth. When trouble comes, it's like we forget everything we ever know about God sometimes, don't we? 
Martin Lloyd-Jones' classic quote in his book, Spiritual Depression, great book, terrible title, is as relevant as ever. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Yourself is talking to you. What's his counsel? Instead of listening to yourself, talk to yourself. Say, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. That's what David's doing here. To do this, we need to have some promises at the ready, don't we? We need to be able to say, God is my helper. God's the upholder of my life. God is faithful to me. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Brothers and sisters, that verse has got me got more mileage in my life than probably any other verse in the Bible. That will get you through anything. Isaiah 41:10. John Piper said that that when the when his mind is in neutral, that verse he's praying would become the hum of the gears. Do not fear. I'm with you. Do not be dismayed. I'm your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. You know, you know how much you can get out of just one verse? That verse tells us five things at least. God is with me. He's all around me. God is above me. He's my God. God is inside of me. He will strengthen me. God will help me. He's right beside me. God is, will uphold me. He's underneath me. He's got you. Above, around, beside, underneath, inside. This is who our God is. With you, above you, inside of you, around you, underneath you. Dear one, you are gloriously boxed in. And not by your trouble. By your God. Thirdly and finally, praise God for He's faithful. After David pleads the promises of God, he preaches the person of God to himself, and then he praises God gladly for who he is and what he does. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, I will thank God for his rescue and vindication. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for its good. You remember some sacrifices were offered up in the Old Testament on occasion of a person making a vow. A person would say, O Lord, if you will deliver me, I vow to do this. But David, as far as we know in this psalm, made no such vow. He simply said, Lord, rescue me. He didn't say on occasion, Lord, if you will rescue me, I pledge to you a goat. I'll offer a ram. But in this passage, David says, Lord, I didn't make that vow. I'm going to offer that sacrifice anyway. I'm freely without constraint, out of sheer delight, going to worship you from a heart of gratitude that glories in giving praise to you, even though you have not yet delivered me. Now, but God does deliver him. And he does write of that deliverance in verse 7. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. David trusts God, and God delivered. Now, we don't know when exactly this psalm was written, in terms of, was it written right after Saul left? He could have written part of it before and part of it after. 
He could have written all of it before. He could have written all of it after. We don't know. But what we do know for sure is that David trusted God as though it would already happen, even if it hadn't happened. And when it did happen, he didn't neglect to give thanks to God for what happened. And that teaches us a lot about praise, doesn't it? About worship. We should worship God in the midst of our troubles, even though he's not delivered us out of them yet. We should worship God when he delivers us from our troubles. And we should worship God in light of deliverance from our troubles. All three of those things are so important for us. Why? Because God has already gotten you out of your worst trouble. If your life is hidden with Christ and God, if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are already out of the worst trouble. Your sin and the death that your sin deserves and the wrath that your sin would incur. Your deliverance has already happened. David was not the only one who knows new betrayal by those who should have welcomed him as their anticipated king. Matthew 21 begins with such a reception as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the colt, being worshipped, Hosanna, save us! But by the end of the week, he's crucified. King Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. John 1.11 John chooses to include that right on the front end of his gospel. This one came and he was betrayed. Jesus was betrayed on every level, having experienced all that David experienced and more. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, David's city. He rescued people from oppression by demons and from sickness in Israel, from blindness, lameness, and hunger, defeating their enemies. He showed himself unmistakably to be the anointed king, but the religious leaders, the experts in the very scriptures that foretold his coming conspired together with foreign occupiers to put him to death. And even his own people betrayed him as he helped them and served them for three years, delivering them from all of their problems. David was hated by Doeg the Edomite who led an unjust slaughter of innocent people in pursuit of David. Well, Jesus was hated by Herod, the great, who was also an Edomite. Don't know if you knew that or not. It's important to know those kinds of details because it shows you David is fulfilling the story, or Jesus is fulfilling the story of David. But Herod would later lead the slaughter of innocent baby boys in Jerusalem and Bethlehem, all at the, all at the pursuit of Jesus. David was welcomed by the inhabitants of Cala as their deliverer, only to have them turn their backs and be ready to hand him over to Saul. Well, Jesus was welcomed by the inhabitants of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as their deliverer, only to have them betray him and turn him over to Pontius Pilate. David was slandered, falsely accused of disloyalty to the king and of leading an insurrection. The Jewish leaders slandered slandered Jesus the same way to Pilate, accusing him of threatening the authority of Rome and challenging Caesar and Pilate's rule. David was betrayed twice by members of his own tribe. Jesus' own betrayal was worse as one of his closest followers sold him for money and betrayed him with a kiss, a sign of close, intimate friendship. And in the midst of all this, what did Jesus do? He called out to God to save him and vindicate him. And God did. Hebrews 5.7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. 
And boy, did God hear Jesus. In the resurrection, God the Father raised Jesus by the power of His might. God exalted Jesus, not only raising Him from the dead, but exalting Him to the right hand of the majesty on high. The same power that raised and exalted Jesus, that vindicated Him in the face of His enemies, is now at work in us to save us and vindicate us from the attacks of our ruthless enemy. Of course, often our enemy attacks us most viciously when we're not innocent, hurling shame and condemnation at us. So we need God to save us and to vindicate us. But how can God vindicate us when we're not innocent? God can justly vindicate us on the basis of the innocence of Jesus who was condemned for us, who took the just punishment we deserve upon ourselves, and who gives us His perfect righteousness. So we can cry out to God for vindication from our earthly accusations, from our heavenly accusations, not based on our own righteousness, but on the perfect righteousness of Christ, our substitute and mediator, our Redeemer and our Savior. Jesus had a whole lot harder life than David did, even though David had a hard life. But Jesus was truly innocent, absolutely perfect. Every word ever said about him was slanderously false, and every action taken against him was ruthlessly evil and unfounded. And yet he prayed to his father and praised his name at all times. David was a man after God's own heart, but Jesus was the man after God's own heart. The perfect embodiment of what David strove to be but never could quite achieve. And Jesus lived his life in perfect obedience to the Father. A perfection that we could never perform. Perfect obedience, perfect prayer, perfect faith, perfect worship. Not just as an example for us, but as our Savior to be the perfection for us that we could never be. Will we pray and preach and praise like David and Jesus? We can only do that if the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus so that He lives His life in us and through us. We can only do that by the power of God working in us, both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. But because Christ is in us, as the Spirit works in us, we can pray to God in times of deep distress, praying for Him to rescue us and vindicate us, preaching to ourselves that He is our rescuer and vindicator, and resolving to praise God for who He is. Because He already has answered that prayer. At the deepest and most fundamental level, God has saved you by His name. God has vindicated you by His might. He has heard your cry. And He has lifted you out of the deepest pit, the very grave. And you will reign and rule with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. Puts our problems in perspective. Fuels our prayers, fuels our praise, and gives us another thing to preach to ourselves in the midst. Let's pray together. Father, so grateful for Psalm 54. So grateful for the ways in which it points us to Jesus. In the example of David, thank you for David's faithful example here to trust you in the midst of a lot of distress. We know David's not a perfect man. He's a fall, fallen, flawed, sinful man that we will see more about. But Lord, he also is a faithful man. But we thank you that he is but a dim reflection, a dim shadow of the true and better David that we've sung about this morning. The true and better David who never sinned and yet was falsely accused. The true and better David who endured the greatest enemies of all, not just human, but spiritual ones, Satan and all of his demons. 
And we thank you that you vindicated him. We thank you that you saved him. We thank you that because we are united with him by faith, that we too are saved and will be vindicated on the last day. Any among us here who are trying to cope with this life and the betrayal that comes in it, any way apart from cleaving to Jesus, we pray that you would lead them to the one friend who will never forsake them. The one Savior who said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Who can we say that about? Even our best friends are going to die. Lord, lead them to a rock that's higher than them and lead them to a Savior that's stronger than them and lead them to a friend that's better than any earthly friend they could ever have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.